you think I'm trying to walk like Kramer and have a little uh, a swagger to my step this morning, um, it's not quite that. My, man, it really stinks to get old, you know? I mean, I'm 35, but uh, uh, older than I was. And uh, I woke up Friday morning and my back was just, I don't know, I don't even know what happened. It was just weird. And uh, it was pretty bad yesterday, this morning. The boys were giving me the, all the light stuff to carry. So they're like carrying big stuff in, and I'm like carrying two little buckets in. And, um, one big thing with, uh, with Dale, and I cried like a baby at one point in it. So uh, it was after that. Um, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, but before we get there this morning, um, I, I did want to talk about uh, just uh, just hopefully really shortly, um, to try to tie in. Last week we talked about the sovereignty of God, and I talked about how uh, it's a bedrock truth of what we're building this church on. That's the reason that we chose the book of Ephesians. Why am I halfway unbuttoned? I don't know. Um, well, I actually, I know why, because uh, Megan brought some uh, medicine for me, and uh, she we went and, and hid, and she, she uh, put some fire water on my back, and uh, it it, I don't know that it stops the pain, but uh, it, it burns the, the back. It burns your skin, and so you're not thinking about it quite as much. can't get this last button button. You're not supposed to do that when you stand in front of people, but uh, we'll go with that. So you gotta, you got to have, you got to be able to reconcile the fact that God is sovereign, and that's a tr- bedrock truth that, not just that we're building this church on, but the, a bedrock truth that, that, that Christianity is built on, a bedrock truth of Scripture itself, that God is sovereign. We, we took it from the phrase in Ephesians 1.11 when it says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then we went through Scripture and just, I, I mean, I, I went long. I took you guys through like, I don't know, 20, 30 Scriptures just talking about God's serenity because it really, because frankly, it, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult subject, and I wanted us to see that that's what Scripture teaches. And, and then as we met in community groups this week, we talked about what does that mean. There were a lot of questions. And particularly, we have to think about it. If, if God is in control of all things, like it's really nice and easy to think about that when you get up in the morning and things are going well and your coffee's made because you're out of your automatic coffee maker and you go out the door and the sun's shining and, you know, you you don't, you hit, uh, you know those, those golden mornings when you hit no red lights on the way to work and you're like, man, this is going to be an awesome day. Uh, but not every day goes like that. And we, we had two, well, lots of tragedies happened in our country this week, but we had two major ones, right? I mean, Monday, the, I remember when Miranda came in, Miranda works for me, uh, with me, and she came in at the end of the day and she's like, wow, that's crazy about Boston, huh? And I, like, I don't know anything about it. She said, I heard there were explosions, and went online and checked it out, and just, man, the images were just coming over Twitter, and I mean, man, it was gut-wrenching stuff. An eight-year-old boy. Where do we file that? What, What do we do with that? I mean, that's tragedy. That's that's more than, that, that's, that, that's, I don't even know, that this, I mean, that's terrible. You see, did you guys see the picture of one, one of the bombers, and he's standing right behind the eight-year-old boy with the backpack he's already laid on the ground? I mean, he knows the eight-year-old boy is standing right there. What do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that a, a fertilizer plant in Texas blew up? Did you guys see that video? The dad's with his daughter, and he's, he's in the car, and it knocks him over in the car. And he's like a half a mile away. Oh, where, where do we file that? The guys are just there just doing their job. And the place blows up. What do we do with the fact that God is in control? How do, how do we deal with that? And the point is that we have to have some sort of theological grid to decide how are we going to think about things like that. Because we all have a theological grid that helps us determine how we think about things. Everybody. 
not only in this room and not only Christians, but everybody has some sort of theological grid that whenever something tragic like that happens and we see an eight-year-old boy killed in an explosion and people missing limbs at the end of Boston Marathon, I've been on that street. It's, that's crazy. What do we do with that? And so we all have to have some sort of way, if you, you're probably part of conversations at work or at home where people are trying to get this to make sense in their head and they have some sort, of, some sort of way they have it make sense. And so we as Christians have to understand that we already have a theological grid that helps us to think about, like make, try to make sense of tragedies like that, but we need to make sure that what our grid is is based upon Scripture. So I just wanted to run through like seven truths really quickly, I promise you. Seven truths that are true that we can know as true at times like this. And tr- terrible, tragic events. What does it mean that God is sovereign? And number one, it means that we know that he is not the author of evil. That though God is in control of all things, that he is not the author of evil that there is an enemy called Satan, he's real, and he has been in rebellion against God from bef- the beginning of our time. And he is the reason that he came to Adam and Eve, and he's the reason the world became the broken world that we see that it is now. And so we live in a broken world, but God is not the author of evil. Number two, we know the fact that he's not that he's sovereign in times like this, is that he is not helpless. That, that though we can feel at times like, how do you ever feel safe? America is this, one of the safest countries you can be in, but how can you feel safe in America if at the end of the Boston Marathon and just people standing around on a street, like something like that can happen? I mean, evil could be lurking around every single corner. How, how do we as Christians, what do we, what do we do with that? We know that, number one, that God's not the author of evil. Number two, he's not helpless. That because God is sovereign over all things that we know, that he works and he's powerful. He's able to, he, Satan is not more powerful than Jesus. Jesus wins in the end. Look at the end of the book. And so we know that God is not helpless in times like this. How does that make sense? I don't know how that meets, meets, meets together, but we know that that's true. Number three, we know that he is just. God is just. And that whenever he returns again, which is what we're going to be talking about at the end of the message today, whenever he returns again, he's going to make all things right. That there's no evil thing, there's no terrible thing that's going to go unpunished. If those two boys, if those two guys had gone uncaptured, there would still be justice against them. And, there, and, and even there, the, the 26-year-old, his death, he is standing before the almighty judge. and He will stand before him, and justice will be served. He's not the author of evil. He's not helpless. He's just. And number four, he's merciful. God is a merciful God. God does not rejoice in evil. He does not rejoice. He, he mourns with those who mourn. As believers, we're called to do the same thing. We're called to grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. The time to come in and say God is in control is not when somebody is laying in bed and they've had their legs blown off. You come to them and you say God is merciful and he is with you now, walking with you through your pain and through your loss. Because that's what he did. We'll get that in just a second. Number five, the fifth truth that we want to, I just want to cover this morning is that mankind is capable of great evil. Think about the atrocities that happen every single day. You know what? What happened in Boston on Monday happens all the time in the Middle East, in Afghanistan. It happens all the time. Things like that, horrendous things happen like that in India, I was there last year. Man, it's rough. Mankind is capable of great evil, and it's really only the fact that God's hand comes in and holds our evil back that the world isn't more terrible. 
We shouldn't wonder that the world, that bad things happen. We should wonder that anything good ever does happen because mankind, are, we are messed up. But it's God and his hand and his grace that holds back worse evil from happening that even does happen already. The sixth truth we want to talk about is that we cannot fix the situation. Did you have that feeling when you're watching the the stuff unfold with Boston, like just a feeling of helplessness? Maybe you remember 9-11, that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. Maybe you think about the direction that maybe our country or the world seems to be going and you just feel helpless and hopeless. We can't fix the situation. But the seventh truth is that we need a Savior. And that's exactly what God sent us. Jesus came and he lived Think of that. God lived as a man. It says he was a man who of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. He came and he lived a life as a human, experienced what it feels to be finite like you and me. And then he bore the, the just dues of our sin upon himself. He came and he walked with us through our darkest time. And that's the truth that we have to cling on. Is that this world is not right, it is broken, it is messed up. We, mankind may be capable of great evil, but we know that God is merciful, God is just, and he's returning to make all things right. And no justice will go, will go unmet. But we know as believers that he came and he bore our burden, he walked with us through the dark times. So that's how we want to, the things that we want, are, want to be mindful of as we walk, as we think about tragedy, and how do we have a framework for how can God be sovereign and yet so much tragedy happen? The truth is we don't understand how it works. We know he is merciful and he is just, and we know that he doesn't take joy in that because he sent his son to bear the burdens for us. So that's the way that we should live as believers. That's the way that we should um, walk with those around us, those in our family, those in our workplace, those in our neighborhood, as we try to figure out how it all works together. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning, um, not for ourselves. It's a beautiful day here in Myrtle Beach, and... uh, it's possible there's tragedy going on right in this room and in our lives, but uh, um, nothing quite as graphic as what we saw unfold in Texas and in Boston this week. And so, Father, we pray for those communities. We pray for the people involved. We pray for the family members, and we uh, particularly pray for the Christians that are in those settings. And, God, we just ask that you would... Um, that you would grant the believers in Boston, the believers in Texas and that community grace to be able to to come alongside those who are suffering those who are afraid those who have been damaged those who are in the midst of dealing with great loss that you would help them to come alongside of them and to bear their burdens with them and to follow the pattern of jesus christ and to walk with people through suffering Father, we thank you that you are both merciful and just And we don't understand, we don't have the perspective, we don't have all the information that's needed in order to know what's going on, but we can rest in the fact that you you will make all things right in the end. We don't know how it all works together, but we know that you are trustworthy and we can trust you. So Father, I pray that you would help us as we're trying to plant seeds of what this this body will look like, what this gospel community will look like in the coming months and years, I pray that you would plant seeds in us that would help us to be a people who know how to deal with suffering and tragedy in our own lives and the lives of people around us with great compassion and great assurance that you're in control. Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us, that you would help the truth that we're going to be covering this morning to become a bedrock that we build this church upon as well. In the name of Jesus, amen.
All right, we're in the book of Ephesians. We're working through, we've been talking about, man, these some amazingly great truths that we've been covering uh, so far. Paul, as I've said, every single week, he gets so excited. He starts off in verse 3, and he just, he cannot stop himself. He can't help himself in talking about the greatness of God and all that he has done, his goodness towards us. I mean, he used soaring language. As he talks about how he's our father, and he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He talks about how we were predestined in love, that he adopted us as sons, that um, that in the beloved we have redemption, we've been redeemed by his blood, we've been forgiven. And he talks about how he lavished grace upon us. And, uh, and then last week we talked about the fact that he is sovereign. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And this week we're going to be covering verse 13 and verse 14. This is an awesome truth. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now what Paul is talking about here in this last section, it's been interesting because in the beginning part of this section, he talks about God the Father, and then in the, uh, starting in verse I don't remember, verse 8, 9, 7, verse 7, he starts talking about the Son and how we have redemption through the Son. And now he ends this section talking about God the Holy Spirit. So he covers the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And what he's talking about here at the end of this section is how does this, all this great reality that we're talking about, that we're adopted and that he's our Father and that we've been predestined according to, by his love, that he made sure that we were going to become his and that, that, that he's in control like, how does all that come to, to, how does that come to fruition in my life? How does that connect with me in the real world? Like, okay, so that he died for me and he redeemed me and I've been forgiven, but how does that, how does that affect me here in the year 2013 in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? How, how, does, that, how does that affect me? What, what is my connection to that? How, how, does, that, how does that happen? And here there's two truths that we're going to look at in this section. First of all, you see it in this, uh, in verse 13. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Christianity is based upon two very important things. And what has happened in the history of Christianity is we tend to go one of, we go to, to one side of the road or the other. First of all, he's talking about here that Christianity is based upon truth. Christianity is based upon truth. That the fact that, that God, there really is a God, and that he really did create the world, as mind-blowing as that may seem, and that we sinned against him, we were separated, he sent his son into the world as a man. I talked about that on Easter. It's a pretty crazy thing that Christians believe. The fact that we believe that God created the world, it's pretty crazy, kind of stands out in our society. The fact that we believe that God became a man who was born of a woman who was also a virgin, pretty crazy. The fact that we said that he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, and that he rose again on the third day afterwards is a pretty crazy thing to believe. And that we say that he's going to come again and there's something about him riding a white horse and a, a sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, it's a pretty crazy thing that we believe as Christians. But the fact is that it's truth. It's true. There really was a true, real Jesus, a real man who lived in Palestine. He was 100% God and 100% man, and he died a, penalty, a death for a penalty that you and I deserved on our behalf, and he rose again. That is true. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now making intercession for you and me. That is true. And so when you heard the gospel of truth, don't worry about it. When you, heard the, when you heard the gospel of truth, <laughs> that's our Cracker Jack IT team over there. What's up, Hudson? No, you're cool. That the, that the, at some point, the word of truth, the gospel was proclaimed to you. Somebody told you about it, and you believed in it. 
Now, how that happens is something we're going to talk about in a second, but you believed in it. The, the gospel makes logical sense. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who sees it and hears it thinks that that's the truth, but the truth is that the gospel makes logical sense. It's not illogical. What you're not asked to do as a Christian, when we talk about having faith, it's not a, it's not a blind step in the dark. No, we're not asking you, hey, let's believe in something that we don't even know is true. Let's just hope. Let's hope it's true. No, it is true, and when you, be, when you heard it, you believed in the truth. It's true. And so uh, that's, one, that's one bedrock truth of, of what the, the church is built upon, the truth that the gospel is true. But then he goes in the second part, and he talks about the other part that we're going to talk about this morning. And you believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The truth is that, the, that Christianity is based upon truth. Logical, it makes logical sense, though not everybody believes it, but also that there's a spiritual element to it. You cannot divorce the two. And so what you have is that generally churches kind of tend to fall in one side of the camp or the other. And so you go to some churches and they're all about like, like mental, right? Like there's a lot of classes and they're teaching and it's, you know, it's about, so growing in Christ to, in those churches can feel like it equals learning more about the Bible, learning more about who God is and what he did, which is very important, but that doesn't equal spiritual growth. Just knowing, knowledge does not equal spiritual growth. I was talking about Michael a few weeks ago about how he grew up in church. I grew up in church as well, and it's very easy to, like, to know all the right answers, to know what the Scripture says, but then one day something happens, a, a flip switches inside you, and all of a sudden what, it seems different, right? That's the spiritual element to it. But now some churches kind of Really, they, they love the, the spiritual aspect. They love, like, the emotions and getting excited about Jesus, and, and it's all about the Spirit. And it's not really much about doctrine and truth and what Scripture says, and we get together and we have a party, right? Like, and, and those are the churches you go to, like, maybe you don't feel very weird. I was talking with Armand a, a couple weeks ago about some churches like that, and, and people are, like, swinging all over the place, and they taking laps around, and, you know, everybody's it's all crazy, and I've heard stories, because I grew up in kind of a charismatic background, and I heard stories of churches getting together, and people getting real excited, and, like, people are, like, like crowing like a rooster, and, and all kind like, like barking like a dog because God's move. I don't know how that works together, but uh, I, I had some friends that are kind of in the kind of weird kind of outskirt, and, and they believe like sometimes it, like when God's like really present in our midst that gold dust like filters down around like, okay, they literally believe this. I am not making this up. Like gold dust like filters around like you walk out of the meeting, you got gold dust on your shoulders because you've been in the presence of God. Uh, uh, I have a buddy at a church down in Charleston and uh, he, he has some people come back from a retreat where God was moving. I'm using quotations if you're listening to this on the podcast where God was moving and uh, and they got back and they said, God was moving so powerfully. Look, my, my filling became a gold filling. And they get so excited. It's all about emotions, you know. Maybe if they're not that crazy. I, I had I, some friends um, uh, who believed that uh, like an angel feather would fall. Like they'd find an angel feather in the room. Uh, I think it was planted. I, I don't think it was an actual angel feather falling down from heaven. But they found an angel feather in the room because God was moving in their midst. So you have churches that some, it's all about the emotions, all about getting excited about, about Jesus, and then you have other churches that are all about the knowledge and about learning and about classes, and they're, they're, they tend to be kind of a little bit more rigid. And, but the truth is Christianity is both of those together. Christianity is truth on fire. It's truth on fire by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God. Because the truth is that you and I, whenever we become a believer, you can't even understand the truth. It, 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 doesn't, it may make logical sense, but it doesn't make sense to you personally until something happens inside you and you're able to, all of a sudden you hear it, you read it, somebody sits down with you. Maybe you've heard the gospel, maybe you grew up in church and you heard it over and over again, but one day you're sitting down at a booth with a friend or you're in a meeting or you're watching Billy Graham on TV and then all of a sudden something made sense all of a sudden. That's the 
presence and the power of the Holy Spirit moving in your heart. So let's look at what that means. When he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. What is he saying when he says that we were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit? Well, it has three big meanings here. It, it means, number one, um, so you, you guys have seen, uh, like, we don't live in the West, but you guys have seen like a Western where they get the cattle up and they rustle them up and they brand them, right? They put the brand on them. Why, why do they do that? Because it's a big open range and they're sending all the, the cattle out with each other and they're going to mix together. They want to be able to tell whose cattle belongs to who. Or even if they're not mixed with each other, they want to know, like if somebody comes and steals a cow, they want them to see like it's their cow. It's been branded. It's been sealed. up. It shows ownership. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit, the power and presence of the third person of the Godhead, if you, have been a, if you are a believer this morning, that he is... You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise to show that you are a child of God, that you belong to him. I, I don't know about you. I, I know some people who have really cool stories about when they became a believer and like, hey, I, I never cussed again, or I was an alcoholic and I never drank another drink again. You know, I, I'd, I was always rude to my wife and I became a believer and I, I was always nice to her afterwards. Well, I haven't heard that story. But, you know, stories kind of like that. And, and those are awesome stories. Those are really great. And that may be the experience of some of us in this room, and that is awesome. But that doesn't happen for everybody. I, I, I don't know about you, but, but maybe, like, one day you became a believer, you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and like, you didn't really look a whole lot different the next day. You might have looked a lot like the same person. Today you might have a lot of the sin problems that you had five years ago. But Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us and among us as believers. It's the great promise and it shows that we are owned by him. Number two, being sealed shows authenticity. Authenticity. So I'm a title searcher by trade. And uh, so what, all I, what we deal with every day, if you don't know what it is, is, is the public records at the courthouse of deeds and mortgages and other documents that are filed to make a, a public record. So when we're checking this title to make sure that this, this property is clear, there's no liens against this, no, nothing. This is, so we're reporting back to the prospective buyer, the mortgage company, everybody that's involved. Like, this is what we found in regards to this property. And so one of the things that we're checking is, are, are the documents executed correctly? And what that means is in the state of South Carolina, um, let's, say, let's say Dan is going to sell his condo to somebody. And somebody's going to draw up a deed and Dan's going to sign it. Right? Kelsey, too, if her name is on, is on the title. And he has to have two witnesses. That means two people who are there who say, I saw Dan and Kelsey sign this document. That is true. And then he has to have, that's not enough, you have to have it notarized. And that is either in, I won't get, it's called a probate or an acknowledgement. And that's where the notary comes, and they sign, and they say, I saw these witnesses I was together with these witnesses, and this witness is, say, is swearing to me that they saw the execution of this document, that it really was Dan and Kelsey that signed it. They were there. And then they have to, especially if it's going out of state, the notary has to seal their signature to show that it's authentic. So that way, when that de deed is delivered to the courthouse, and then it's clocked in, which is something that we'll talk in in just a second, but it's, it's clocked in to show the time and date that it was made of public record, that they are certifying that this is real and true. This is a, an honest-to-goodness transfer of Dan's property to Kramer. That it, it's not, it's not uh, somebody else coming along and, say, and signing away Dan's property to Kramer and he's not really getting it. It's, it's, not, it's for real. It's authentic. It authenticates something. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. We're going to get ready to get into how he does that. But he authenticates the fact that you are a son or daughter of God. And then the third thing is 
It shows ownership. He shows authenticity. And the third thing is he shows security. It secures you. A seal, um, it, back in, in the, this time when this, ah, man, that hurts. Back in this time when, I won't do that again. This time when the, uh, I'm going to have to reach it though. I will have to do it again. Um, back in when uh, this was written, uh, there was a way that you, you couldn't just send an email from person to person or a letter. It, you, had to, you had to send it by, you know, special delivery. You had to send it through the, the Rome system. And you had to be able to show that this is actually this is actually me that's signing this and sending it to you. And so a person of authority would have a signet ring. Wouldn't it be cool to have a signet ring? They don't give those out anymore in like special decoder rings and, and stuff in, in cereal boxes. But it would be cool to have like a signet ring. And so what you do is you would sign it, and then you would drip some wax on the paper, particularly on a seal. And then you would take the ring and you would stick it into the, into the melted wax. And then it would harden so it would show it was, that was really him. He was there. He put his own signet ring in this, on this uh, signature, and then they would seal up the document, and you would seal it with wax, and then you would stick your signet ring in the sealing as well to show that not only is it true, but it hasn't been opened by the time it gets to you. It secures it. You guys remember, uh, maybe not old enough to remember, uh, I remember I was a kid, I guess it was back in the 80s or 90s, like there was a deal with Tylenol, like people were taking Tylenol and getting sick and dying. You guys remember that? Uh, that that's because that they would just like put a cap, they would like put Tylenol in there and put a cap on it and send it out. Like that, that was it. Like, doesn't that seem crazy now? Like, it's also like, like, like last week I was talking about like my parents would let me stand up in the front seat of the car like without a seatbelt. Like now it seems like sinister. Like how terrible parents you have. But that's just the way we roll. Like they would just make Tylenol, throw it in a jar, close it up, send it on to you. And people were like getting it, opening it up and putting poison in there. And people were taking Tylenol, getting sick and dying. And so they started this deal where they would put what over top of it? A seal, a tamper-resistant seal that secures it so that whenever you open that daggum child safety lid and you finally get that thing off you can tell this thing is safe it's secure it has not been opened or tampered with from the time it left the factory to the time it got to my house and i wish i'd taken some Tylenol this morning i, I didn't even take it. i have no idea what i'm thinking about I, i'm uh, i'm regretting that decision that i didn't open a tamper resistant seal and pull out some Tylenol that has you know it's secure. The Holy Spirit for you shows ownership, authenticity, and security. But let's look at what, what the whole deal about the Holy Spirit is about. I don't know why I didn't put this, frankly, I, I didn't put this in a good order for you guys. I apologize for that. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. What we're going to be talking about is whenever he says the in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this is the really big deal that we're going to be talking about this morning. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I'm glad I checked my notes before I started this morning because I had the wrong chapter of Ezekiel in here. And uh, it was going to be talking about something about a, a whore and God killing us. And it, it wouldn't fit with what we're talking about this morning. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. So here's the, here's, the, here's the problem that we're running into in this section. So God chose a people, the people of Israel, for his own people, right? You guys know where the story, you've seen the Ten Commandments, know how it works? So God, God chose his people, he pulled them out, he said, you're going to be my people, and he gives them laws. He says, if you're going to be my people, then this is the way you have to conduct yourself. He gives them the Ten Commandments, gives them other laws, this is how you should live your life. And in, in as he does it, he tells them, you guys are going to be terrible at keeping these laws. He says it in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses says, hey, I'm giving these laws. You guys are going to be horrible at this. You're going to fall away from, from me. I'm going to come back and bring you back. It's, it's going to be a yo-yo back and forth. And that's the way it was because God gave them the laws, but we've already covered this morning how mankind are, we're really bad people. We are evil. And so God comes to them. It's not that the system doesn't seem to be working, but God gave them God gave them the laws for a reason. We won't get into it. Verse 25. This is what he promises to them. There's several times in the Old Testament where he gives them a promise like this. So the laws are hard for them to keep. They keep messing up. But he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The great promise that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament wasn't about the promised land that they were going to move into. The great promise that he kept pointing them to was the fact that I am going to send my spirit to you. And my, I will cleanse you myself. He's talking about the work of Jesus Christ. And he says, and I will, put, I will give you a new heart because you cannot keep the law that I've given you. You keep messing up. You keep falling down. You keep falling away, running away from me. I keep running after you and bringing you back. And then you run away and then I bring you back. You keep messing up all the time. But I promise you, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send my, my own spirit to dwell in you and among you. So I will give you a new heart so that you will be, not only will you be clean, but you will want to live a different kind of life because my spirit himself will come and dwell in you. Look at Acts chapter 2. We see the promise come to fruition. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. When you I have 33 on the screen, but we'll, we'll start at verse 32. This is Peter, that, that first uh, sermon in Christianity on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So that's the truth. He's saying we are all witnesses to you that this Jesus, he did die, and he, was, he raised again. He was raised again. He is risen, and we are witnesses of that. It is true. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The great promise that Peter was saying has come here on the day of Pentecost is that he has sent the Holy Spirit that he promised that he would send. It's the great promise that God was always looking forward to in the Old Testament, that he would send his spirit to us. What does that mean? Well, go ahead and look at Matthew 6, 16, verse 17. So in this, in this section... Um, Jesus asks his disciples, so who do people say I am? You know, what, he, he's asking them, what's the word on the street? What, 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 are, people, what are people saying about me? And, uh, and they answer, and they say, well, you know, some people think that you're Elijah that's come back from heaven, and some people think that you're Jeremiah. Some people say that you're John the Baptist that's come back from the dead. Um, boy, that's some crazy beliefs, huh? If, if, but, but then he said in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, it says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, that's what we were talking about when, um, I'm going to sit down in this chair. That's what we were talking about when we were talking about how, um, how many times did you hear the gospel before you became a believer? Did, did you grow up in church maybe? Maybe you had a lot of conversations. Maybe you had a roommate that kept talking to you about it. And you, you knew the story. They kept telling you the truth. But it's just, you know, you're like, okay, you know, Whatever. But then one day, something happens, and it seems different to you. C.S. Lewis said that one day he got on, he knew the whole story. He, was, he, he did not like Christianity at all. He was very anti-Christianity. But he got on the train one day, and he says, I don't know what happened, but when I got on the train, and when I got off the train, I was a different man. 
How does that happen? What happened on the train? He actually didn't even have any conversation with anybody. Just God opened his eyes on that train, and all of a sudden he saw the truth of who Jesus was. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying to Peter. He's saying, flesh and blood does not reveal this to you. It's my Father who is in heaven. It's the Holy Spirit who has come to you and shown to you the truth. He's, he's come to you and allowed you to not only hear the truth that God is good and gracious, but you are suddenly one day you taste it. And you know that he is. It's the difference between me telling you that honey is sweet or telling you that I had a really good meal the other night at the Rivertown Bistro in Conway and you actually being there with me and tasting the food yourself and knowing that it's good. It's the difference between you hearing that uh, that Disney World is a really cool place and you actually being there. It's a, it's a far cry, but, the, but what's the difference? You've heard the same truth as your, as your person, as your neighbor beside you. They've heard about Jesus, but for you, he seems awesome. He seems great. He seems the, for the reason that you live. He's sweet to you. He is wondrous to you. The fact that he is in control is a comfort to you. Why, does it, why is it different from somebody else who has the same information? It's because the Holy Spirit has come to you and has caused you, he has come to dwell in you. He's caused you to be able to see and taste and to savor the truth differently than you did before. You've been born again. God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you whenever you are whenever you become a believer. In fact, that's how you even see the truth that day, that because God's Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you and makes you a new person. You may not know exactly when it happened, but you see the results of it because you have been born again. It's like, I don't know what happened to my back. I don't remember lifting anything or pulling anything. I mean, the work as a title searcher is not exactly physically demanding. I don't... You know, I lift papers, I, I click a mouse, you know, I, I type on the keyboard. I don't know that I reach for the F a little bit different and pull my back. I don't have any memory of that. I don't know what happened. I may have just, I'm 35, I may have just slept on it wrong. I have no idea. I sneezed. I turned it incorrectly and something happened. But I didn't, I didn't know when it happened, but I am a w- very well aware that something happened. I've become progressively more aware of that fact as Friday wore along. I was, had breakfast with Kramer and Dale, and I was hurting a little bit that morning, but as the day progressed, I was hurting more and more. Yesterday, I had trouble changing. I was like crying out like a baby on the floor. I was trying to change Landon's diaper, and I, I was bit over in a wrong way. It was hurting me so bad. I, I don't know what happened, but I can see the effects of it happening over time. And maybe that's your story. Maybe you remember when it happened. Maybe it's like a spotlight came on you and there was magic dust around you and, and, and you know like what happened and where, where you were and what, how, how it went down. But maybe it didn't. Maybe just slowly over time, like you just, one day you woke up and you realized, man, I feel differently today. I, I'm thinking about Jesus differently than I was before. I, the, the, to, to read, when I hear scripture preached or, or I read it myself, it, it sounds different. It has a different appeal to me. I don't, know, I don't know when that happened, but I know something has changed in me. That's because the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of Godhead, has come to dwell inside you and has caused you, that's the wording from Ezekiel, he has caused you to be born again. You didn't wake up and decide that morning that you were going to be a Christian. God breathed his Holy Spirit into your soul, and you became a different person. And you may not know how it happened or when it happened. You may not know the moment or the place, but you saw the effects of it over time, that you are a a new person. You were born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Christianity is not just about believing the right thing or believing something different than you believed before. It's not about conversion from one belief to another belief, though it involves believing. I mean, it says that right in our text, but the source of it is that the promised Holy Spirit of God has come to dwell in your heart. Think about that. Think about the truth of that. If you're a believer this morning, the third person, the Trinity, 
the third person of the freaking Trinity is living inside you today. That should, that should that should wow us. That should change the way that we approach everything to think about that truth. God's Holy Spirit is living inside you. And inside me, he is making you a, a temple of, this, of his Holy Spirit. That, that whenever he, God called the Jews to be his own people, he, erected a, he taught, had them erect a temple in their midst, and his very presence lived in the temple. That was amazing. It set them apart from anybody else on the face of the earth. Because they had the temple where God, God dwelt among them. God's Holy Spirit dwelt among them. But if you are a believer in Christ today, He is living inside you just as, just as for real as He was living inside, dwelling inside the Holy of Holies in the temple in the midst of Israel. You are a walking temple of the Holy Spirit today. You have been born again. And the Holy Spirit comes and he, He's the one that connects our hearts to God. Remember I said like, that God, Paul is talking about like, how does this become real? How does the fact that God is my Father become real to me? It's because God's Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside your heart and He is, he is a a living, breathing connection between you and God the Father and God the Son. You are really, for real, spiritually, mystically connected to God the Father. Look at Romans 5, 5. Romans 5, verse 5. We can start in verse 3. I don't have it on the screen. But not only that, but we who rejoice in our sufferings, no, but not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Listen to this. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You are, as a believer, are vitally and spiritually connected to God the Father and God the Son through God the Holy Spirit who comes to your heart and pours out God's love in your heart. Think about that. There's all kinds of stories. I don't know what everybody's story in this room. Maybe some of you were atheists. Maybe some of you were anti-God. Maybe some of you were really rebellious and you didn't believe in Him. But there's tons of stories of people who were Atheists didn't believe in him, were anti-God, just like C.S. Lewis. Was, he was an avowed atheist. He made fun of Christians, made fun of the Bible, but he studied it because of part of his studies. And then he had a friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote some awesome books, by the way. You should definitely read them. He had a friend who kept telling him about Jesus and telling him about Scripture, and he scoffed at him. But one day, all of a sudden, that Jesus, that God that he had made fun of, all of a sudden became the object of his love and worship. How's that happen? Because God has sent his Holy Spirit and he has shed God's love abroad in your heart. So in Galatians, it talks about how he, his, that we cry out to God, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. It's not really a direct translation between Abba, Father in, in English, but it's something very intimate. It's like Daddy. It's like, it's, 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 it's it's intimate and close. How can we address God the Father that way? Because he has shed his love abroad in our heart and has caused us to view him and react to him differently. He's shed his love abroad in our hearts. Why, why, does, why does all of a sudden people who have no, no background in common, no reason to gather, even a group like this, or all over the world... I went to India last year, as I told you. I, don't, I share nothing in common with the Indian culture. They, they, it's, if you've never been there, it's hard to describe. It is, it is a crazy, crazy place. They don't think or act like us in any way. It is, it, it, it's, it's, up, it's like upside-down world over there. They just, it's just different. But yet, whenever I gather with other people who love Jesus Christ, we have something in common. Why would that be? We have no culture in common, no background in common. Our lives are totally different. What is it? 
It's because God's Spirit is inside that Indian, and God's Spirit is inside me. And he has shed not only a love for God abroad in my heart, but he shed God's love for his people abroad in my heart as well. We share something in common. We're brothers. That's crazy. And so for you, as you're sitting here, maybe you have a, a close family member or a friend or a neighbor, a coworker who they just seem really, really far from God. And you think there's absolutely no hope for them. Well, you know what? The hope isn't found in circumstance. The hope isn't even found in bringing them to to a Sunday morning one day here and hope that Randy's on that morning and is able to say something that gets through their thick skull or moves them a little bit closer. The hope for them is found in that God's Holy Spirit would come and breathe life into them and come and dwell in them and regenerate them and make them a new person. It was only, that was your only hope. If you grew up in church you were just as lost, just as far away from God until God's Spirit breathed upon your heart as the most hardened atheist there is. That's our hope. Not only are we, uh, not only are we born again, and not only does He connect our hearts to God and shed His love abroad in our hearts, it causes us to be really united to God the Father, but He brings new affections to our hearts. He causes us to love God and to rejoice in Him. It affects us personally. It stirs our affections and emotions. It absolutely does. You, it, may not be, it may not be a, uh, a trumpet blast whenever you became a Christian. Like I said, you may not know when it happened. You may not be cognizant of it, but you are cognizant of the results of His presence in your life. It is unmistakable in your life. You know. All of a sudden you think about Jesus, you think about sin, you think about your life differently than you did before. You don't, you don't view it as an imposition for God to say, I want you to do this and not do this anymore. You view it as a pleasure to be able to obey God and follow him. What causes that change? The Holy Spirit starts to change our affections. It stirs us, our emotions. All of a sudden, we've heard the story of Jesus, we've We've, we've sung songs before, but the same songs we've sung, the same Jesus that we've thought about, the same communion bread and, and juice that we've taken over and over again, all of a sudden, not every Sunday, but occasionally brings a tear to your eye. You're driving down the road, you listen to a song, all of a sudden you start crying because you're thinking about how awesome and wonderful Jesus is. What brings that, that stirring of your affections or emotions is because God has changed he has come to dwell inside you, and he is changing your very affections and your very emotions. This is a very key, very, very key phrase. It affects us all to the same extent, though not in all the same way. So what that means is it affects us all to the same extent. It, as a believer, it changes you at your very core of your being. But it doesn't mean that we all respond in the same way, right? If you look at a if you go to a football game, you, the real fans aren't just the ones that are up and cheering. They, they, they may be standing up, they may be sitting down. They, you don't know like, physically what's going on. Their back may be hurting. You know, they, they, my stuff might be going on. They, they, they might not just be an emotional person, but it doesn't mean they're less of a fan. It may really be affecting them, but they don't all respond the same way. So some of us are going to cry more often than others. Some of us are going are to sing louder than others. Some of us are going to enjoy singing. Some of us aren't going to enjoy singing quite so much. Some of us may want to lift our hands and clap when we sing a song. Some may not want to. Some may, be, some may fall apart every time they hear a particular song in the, on, uh, in the cars or driving around. You may not be affected the same way, but it will if God's Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, in your heart of hearts, it will affect you to a full extent. It will change you. It will, change, it will turn the way that you think about life upside down. It has changed you, and it progressively changes you over time. It affects us all to the same extent, though not in all the same way. And then the fourth thing, so it, it uh, unites us, it, it, we're born again, it connects our hearts to God, the Holy Spirit causes us to have new affections, and it also causes growth over time. You can tell 
that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that, you, that his ownership, his authentic, the authenticity of his presence and work in your life, and the security that we're getting ready to talk about in a minute, that, that you are secure, comes from seeing the effects of the Holy Spirit in your life, and that includes you growing as a believer. It means that over time, you start to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Because you know how Jesus Christ lived the life that he lived on the earth? It's not because he was just God. Scripture tells us that everything that he did came from the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's that same Holy Spirit that is dwelling in you and me. So that's going to cause us, over time, to look more and more like Jesus. It's not, a, it's not a ride like this, like a nice smooth plane of growth. It's probably more like this. It's more like, um, Megan read a book one time, said it's more like uh, doing a yo-yo up a, up a flight of stairs. That's what your spiritual growth may look like. There may be days that you're just like, it seems like you're going down. Some days you're like flatlined. Some, there are months that are going, you're just like, you're... You're just plummeting. You're like, what's going on with my life? It's terrible. You know, God seems far from me. I'm, I'm, I'm sinning all the time. I don't even feel like I care about him, but something happens. And he pulls you back. And over time, it may be like this, where you're growing more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Why? Why can you be secure in knowing that that will happen? That's because it's not dependent upon your work. If Kramer has been getting up for the past week at, what, 5.30, 5.45 in the morning and working out with a buddy of his who is wanting to try out for the Navy SEALs. That's pretty impressive. And so Kramer is either a great friend or a stupid friend or I don't know, but he's going out with him every day to train for the Navy SEALs. Um, if, if that dude doesn't put in the work he will not get stronger and faster and be able to pass the Navy SEAL test better. He's going to get out the work that he puts in. The Christian life, Christian growth doesn't happen the same way. It happens because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is living and dwelling in your heart. And that could be the security for you to know that you will grow. Let's look at one more thing and then we'll um, try to land this baby. Look at the other part of that verse. It says, um, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And what that's saying is, that's saying that listen, if you're a Christian, this isn't it. This fallen, broken world that we've been talking about and thinking about this morning, probably been thinking about how it's fallen and broken all week long. Like, this is not it. God is coming back, and Christ will set all things right. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will, he will bring us in. There'll be no more sin, there'll be no more death. Life will be united under Jesus Christ in harmony, in, in peace, in shalom that we talked about a few weeks ago. That is coming. That is our inheritance. And we will rule and reign with God the Father, with Jesus Christ, as his sons and his daughters. That's your inheritance. That's my inheritance, if, if you're a believer. But the assurance, the security that you have, that that is coming and that you are, that, that, that you are secure is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That word that he's the guarantee of our inheritance, it's the wording of like a, of like a down payment. It's the, it's the first payment of like kind. First payment of like kind. So what it means is that the fact that the Holy Spirit, that you have the presence and power of the third person of Godhead in your life and is in our midst as believers today is the guarantee, is the down payment of what is to come. It's just the first installment. And so that means that today on earth that we live with his presence and power in our lives, it's like, a, it's like, a, it's like an hors d'oeuvre. It's a foretaste of what's to come. But it's just a foretaste. 
you can be secure because God has said, this is my earnest. This is, have you ever put down earnest money? You sign a contract to buy a house or to buy something, and you have to put down earnest money. What, is, what does that mean? You say, well, I'm going to give you this money. It might be $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. I'm going to give you this money to say that I want to buy your property, and I promise you in this next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever the contract is, I'm going to, come, I'm going to close the deal and buy this property. But this is my money to let you know that I'm for real about this. And if I break the contract, you get to keep the money because it's my earnest money. But it's, it's supposed to be enough money that, that, that you know as a seller that this guy is for real. He's not just going to walk away leaving this money on the table. It's the earnest money. And that is what the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is. It's the earnest money that God's saying, I have a big inheritance that's coming your way. I'm going to come and set all things right. You are my son and daughter. You will rule and reign with me forever. And this is a foretaste to let you know it's really coming. It's the first installment in like kind. In like kind, that's a very key phrase. He's not just giving you like $1,000 and say, I'm going to come back and pay you with butter beans later on, I promise you. He's saying, no, there's going to be more money coming after you. It's like, it's like having, let's say if, if Bill Gates owed you money. That's, wouldn't that be great? Like he owed you, say, for him, it's nothing. So let's say he owes you $10 million. You know, maybe you're his pool boy, and, it, you know, the contract is $10 million to clean his, you know, I don't know, his, his pool. And his pool has got a water park in his backyard, let's say. And, 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 and so you, you, that, you have a $10 million contract with him. And so he gives you money, and he says, and here's my bank account draft information. You can draft the money out of there every month that you need until it's paid off. That would be gold, right? I mean, you wouldn't have to go home and worry about it. Like, I wonder if he's going to actually pay me. You know, Bill Gates is good for it. It's automatic. I got his bank, bank account draft information. It's going to be deposited in my account. I can count on that money. Like, countries may fall. Madagascar may not exist uh, five months from now. But Bill Gates is going to be okay, right? And you would know for certain that's the, that is a guarantee of future payments to come. And that's what the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and my life is like. It's a guarantee. It's saying, I'm going to cash this in, baby. I have not forgotten you. Though the days may be dark, the times may be tough, though you may not know what's going on. You may not know, you may not even feel like a believer this morning when you got up. I'm not sure I'm a believer until I have about my second cup of coffee, but he, his presence and power in my life is the assurance that he's going to cash it in. And he's going to come back. And I'm going to be united to him. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more weird, mysterious, lower back pains for me. He's coming to set everything right. That's the assurance, the assurance that you and I have. The power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the seal of God's ownership of you, of the authenticity of your faith, and of the security that you are His. There's nothing that you can do to break that seal. It's unbroken from the outside, and it is unbreakable from the inside. He has secured you and sealed you. So as believers in an uncertain world, in a dark, broken world, we can live with confidence, knowing that he not only has the world in his hands, but he has you in his hands. And his presence and his power is in you. That's a bedrock truth that we want. Not only we want you personally, and I want personally to live in that sort of light, to, to know that I'm sealed, and to look at the evidence of his sealing in my life, but we want to be a group of people who live like temples of the Holy Spirit. As we scatter during the week into our neighborhoods and our workplaces, we want to go as temples of the Holy Spirit. There should be that, that work and that presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives should be affecting people and touching people and changing people around us all the time. Not, not out of your strength or my strength, but because the third person, the Godhead, is in you and he is among us.
That's a great truth, isn't it? Let's live like the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Amazing, amazing truth. I'm going to pray. Don't forget your cards. seems inappropriate to talk about it right now, but don't forget, take a card and invite somebody. Um, not because we want a crowd. I promise you that's not the reason. Because you and I are living temples of the Holy Spirit. And we want people to come to know. We want God's, we want His Spirit to come and breathe upon people's hearts that they may, that His love may be shed abroad in their hearts as well. Let's pray. Father, we, um, as we prepare our hearts for communion, to partake of your table, of your body and your blood, God, we do so um, with sober hearts. We do so with uh, serious minds, serious hearts, knowing that it's no small thing to, to share the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But God, we also do so, if we are believers, we do so with, with hearts that are full of celebration, hearts that are full of thankfulness, that it's not, just a, uh, it's not just a set of beliefs that we believe and are kind of holding on until you come back, but that you have given us a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come by sending your promised Holy Spirit and his presence and his power to dwell in us and among us, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the same Holy Spirit that enabled your son, Jesus Christ, to live the kind of life that he lived and die the kind of death that he died for us and to even conduct the miracles that he did and to love people the way that he did, that that Holy Spirit is dwelling in us as well as believers. So Father, I pray that you would help us to celebrate that, but also I pray that you would help us to take an account of our lives this morning. Because we may not know the, the time that, that you caused us to be regenerated, born again, but God, we should be able to see the evidences of your Spirit's presence in our lives. And if we look at our lives and we don't see that evidence, I pray that you would uh, convict us this morning. I pray that you would draw us. I pray that you would open our eyes to, to uh, truly be awakened to the beauty that is found in Jesus Christ, to see our sins as odious before you to see the, um, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as more than sufficient to cover it. And we place our trust and faith in Him. Not just believing in Him mentally, but place our, our hearts, faith, and trust in Him.